Hi, and welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, where we explore the unexplained. Our topics include missing persons, UFO and aerial phenomenon, unsolved murders, lost treasures, cryptozoology, urban legends, conspiracies, ancient archaeological anomalies, and much more. If this is your first time listening to us and you like our show, remember to subscribe when you get a chance. Each episode, we will dive into a topic or case with an in-depth narrative and include special guest interviews where possible. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 1, Episode 10, The Unsolved Abduction and Murder of Kelly Cook. The village of Standard, Alberta, is home to about 353 residents living a peaceful country lifestyle just 80 kilometers from Alberta's largest city, Calgary. On April 22, 1981, however, big city crime shocked this tiny village to the core. Standard would never be the same, and Alberta would be on edge. 15-year-old Kelly Cook was abducted and later found murdered. Alberta would be on guard for years to come as the case bled into the psyche of every parent. To this day... The abduction and murder of Kelly Cook remains unsolved. Investigators have worked tirelessly on this case for decades, and there is even a special room dedicated to the files for the Cook homicide, which is filled to the roof with boxes and boxes of evidence. More than 2,200 possible suspects have been looked at, and police confirm the case is still active. RCMP believe This was a well-planned crime. But let us delve into this further to see if there is another possibility. Reports indicate that Kelly Cook received a phone call from a man identifying himself as Bill Christensen, who asked for her to babysit for him that evening. He explained he would pick her up at her residence. Kelly routinely babysat, and although she did not recognize the name, the surname was a common one in that area. Crime was virtually non-existent, and residents would often leave doors unlocked. Kelly's friend, Sidney Crabson, who also babysat regularly, recalls Kelly was uneasy and asked if Cindy knew this Bill Christensen person, but then Kelly reassured herself because she indicated to Cindy that when she asked if the man knew where she lived, he reassured her by providing the names of her next-door neighbors. At 8.30 p.m., a car pulled up in front of the cookhouse, and beeped its horn. The driver did not leave his car, and Kelly walked out of her house and climbed into the automobile's front passenger seat, and then the car simply drove off. Kelly Cook's younger sister, Marnie, age 12 at the time, watched this unfold from the basement window. Later that night, concerned that Kelly had not called in to report where she was and that she had not returned home, they called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. A quick local search yielded no results, and as a result, a massive local search was launched, but again yielded no results or even clues. Police knew they were dealing with a dangerous person and had hopes that Kelly Cook would be found alive and immediately started pressing into the evidence they could gather. They traced their original call from the man identifying himself as Bill Christensen to a local gas station owned by Lee Abbott which was several miles outside of Standard on Highway 561 and the Trans-Canada Highway. 
Police learned that Kelly Cook may not have been the intended victim as a witness came forward and identified herself as Kelly's friend. She had received a call from Bill Christensen on April 18th, who phoned from the Standard Hotel bar and who asked to have her babysit. However, she was not feeling well and was busy, so she passed along Kelly Cook's phone number as a backup. Bar staff identified the man as having a rough attitude. He walked directly up to the bar and almost demanded to use the telephone. He makes the call to Kelly's friend, buys a case of beer, and gets annoyed about his change, and leaves without saying thank you. They include a vague description of a tanned, heavy-set man. However, there are reports that a man who entered a local restaurant asking the waitress if she did babysitting and if she could help him out. The waitress gave Kelly Cook's friend's number, and she in turn gave the number of Kelly Cook. A composite description of the man from all witnesses indicate the perpetrator as being about 30 to 40 years old, 5'10", 160 pounds, medium to heavy build, with a round face and swarthy complexion. His hands and face were weather-beaten, but with short dark hair and clean-shaven. He had a blue windbreaker with a possible logo on it. The car he was driving is reported as being a 1978 full-size Chrysler or GMC, light-colored with possible Alberta plates. If we are to believe these reports, then the perpetrator had not planned on a specific victim. He was most likely fishing for a young girl, any girl. But the question remains, why do this in such a small village where the relative amount of young girls is low and the chance of being identified extremely high? There are reports that the school at which Kelly Cook was attending received a telephone call just prior to the abduction. In March 1981, a photo ran in a local paper of a girl from a figure skating club. The principal of the school recalls that a man indicated he saw the girl in the photo and wanted to know more about her. The principal indicated it was not policy to reveal the girl's name, address, or phone number. The caller hung up. It seemed as if the perpetrator was looking for a specific type of girl. It may have settled on Kelly Cook. Police learned that at 10 p.m. the evening of the abduction, a call was placed to the operator from a payphone in Husser, Alberta, only 25 kilometers away. The operator reported that she heard the sound of a woman screaming and then the call was immediately cut off. Police believe that this may very well have been Kelly Cook. Speculation is that the perpetrator stopped for gas, but at this hour, at that time, everything would have been closed. Did Kelly jump out of the vehicle in an attempt to escape? Or was she held captive near the payphone in Husser, Alberta? The two-month in-depth search for Kelly Cook ended on June 29th, when her badly decomposed body was found in an irrigation canal 90 miles southeast of Standard. The discovery was made by two Tabor youths riding motorcycles along Highway 36, along the shore of Chin Lake, a natural reservoir 25 miles east of Lethbridge. The body was so badly deteriorated that the Calgary Medical Examination Office was unable to determine how or when Kelly Cook died. Later, the press indicated they received reports that Kelly died of asphyxiation, but she was not sexually assaulted, leaving investigators baffled as to the motive of her slaying. She was bound by the hands and feet by rope and anchored by two concrete blocks. The body was found several yards from shore and 200 yards from the highway bridge. The body was only discovered because of the low levels of Chin Lake due to a drought. 
The RCMP subsequently dragged the lake in an unsuccessful search for additional clues, and a team of divers also conducted a fruitless exploration. Following the discovery of the body, there was an eerie twist in the case. On July 2, 1981, a man went into the Calgary funeral home where Kelly's body was being kept and demanded to see the corpse. Attendants turned him away. Police still haven't been able to determine whether the man was her killer. Police say it was not common knowledge that Kelly's body was in that funeral home following the autopsy. RCMP Inspector George Foulon says investigators were searching for this man where Cook's body was being held after an autopsy before it was shipped to Standard, Alberta. Foulon said the man walked into the funeral home during the early evening of July 2nd, claiming to be a friend of the Cook family and requested to view the body. He was told he could not, and he left. The Cook family has told police they were unaware of any friends or family of theirs who had tried to view the body in Calgary. Nor was it public knowledge that the body was at this particular funeral home. The man was described as being in his mid-30s, about 5 feet 11 inches tall, and 165 to 170 pounds. He was heavy set and had a dark complexion. The man never came forward and was never identified. Four and a half months after the abduction, girls in Canmore, Alberta, two hours west of Standard along Highway 1, reported getting strange calls from a man whose name was not remembered. The man was requesting a babysitter, and he said he would pick up the babysitter at their house and drive them to his house. Suspicious of the request, and that they did not recognize the name in a small town of 3,000 people, each girl failed to provide the service to the man. RCMP were called and investigated, but no lead surfaced, other than the phone calls were placed by a man using a payphone, and that he had called 11 girls, and if a girl turned him down, he asked for referrals, just like the Kelly Cook's abductor had done. But let's back up a bit. Before the abduction of Kelly Cook, before the creepy call to the school, and before the search for a babysitter by the unidentified man. On April 1st, 1981, it is reported that Michelle Allen, age 15, provided a warning to residents and children about a child abductor and that it is unsafe for any girl or boy her age to be on the streets alone, even in a small community like the one she resided in. Michelle Allen's experience began near the Mayfair Theater at about 6.30 p.m. in Olds, Alberta, which is about an hour and a half north of Standard. She was walking toward the theater when a small car stopped opposite her. Seeing the American license plates, Michelle also stopped thinking that the lone occupant might need some directions. Instead, the driver got out, grabbed her, and shoved her in the car and took her off to Red Deer, Alberta. Michelle said the driver was frustrated because of the selection of hotels in Red Deer, so he continued on toward Edmonton. Again in Edmonton, he was dissatisfied with the selection and then drove back to Leduc, where he stopped at the Leduc Inn. Once stopped, Michelle struggled with the driver and managed to get out of the vehicle where she began screaming for help. One man came to her assistance and then a crowd gathered. Police were called and Michelle and her abductor were taken into the RCMP office. Michelle was reunited with her parents and facing charges was 44-year-old Chester Keith Bordelon of no fixed address from Louisiana. He faced multiple charges, including deportation. 
It is unclear what exactly happened to Chester Keith Bordelon, if he was released on bail or on a promise to appear or was deported immediately or if he ever did any jail time. What is for certain is that he died in 2008 in Morro, Louisiana. It is unknown if he had any charges or convictions. What is assumed is that he was from Louisiana, so he would have a tanned complexion, like the perpetrator in the Kelly Cook abduction murder. What is known for certain is that he was a child abductor and a sexual predator in 1981. Now let's fast forward a bit. In 2017, Toronto Police stated they want to find child killer Dennis Melvin Howe by any means possible and either dead or alive. Detective Sergeant Stacy Gallant of the Cold Case Squad says no other killer equals Howe for the sheer evil and depravity that sears in his dark soul. Howe raped and murdered a nine-year-old and squished her body into a refrigerator. For more than three decades, detectives have scoured the earth for the elusive killer. No tip has been too outlandish for them to chase down. The road has led to heartache, and nearly all leads have been dead ends. For some, Howe is a suspect in the Kelly Cook case. Howe was last seen in Winnipeg, Manitoba in the early 1980s. Howe had a lengthy criminal career and spent almost 15 years in Saskatchewan prisons for assaulting women and girls. Although no confirmed records show Howe in Alberta, it is possible he was there in 1981. He was born in Regina and is said he visited Alberta in the past. Howe's whereabouts today are unknown. Another interesting suspect is Robert Edward Brown, who was a junkyard worker and pig farmer who was arrested in 1983 for the murder of two girls, one in High River and another one in Okotoks, Alberta, in 1981. The first was beaten to death, and the other, a 16-year-old female, stabbed to death. Robert then poured gasoline on each of the bodies and burned them until only a charred body remained. During police interviews, Brown indicated he had committed other murders in Alberta and up to seven across Canada. He provided details not released to the public about some of the cases to which the police believe his narrative. In 1981, he was living in Blackie, Alberta, about an hour south of Standard. However, Robert Brown will never divulge any more, as he was knifed to death by a fellow inmate in 1986. And then there is serial killer Terry Arnold of St. Catharines, Ontario. Terry moved to Winnipeg, Manitoba, and then to Bentley, Alberta. Terry was a troubled youth who found himself in and out of youth centers. His first relationship ended quickly when his new wife in 1980 found out about his kinky views about having sex with children. Arnold told her that if they had a daughter, he would have intercourse with her when she was old enough. She left her husband and was so terrified she aborted their baby. At this time, he lived in Calgary, Alberta, and it is at this time his killing started. Some people believe that Terry Arnold's first victim may have been Kelly Cook. Psychiatrists said he had a high IQ and was very detail-oriented and was bold. However, at the time of the abduction and murder of Kelly Cook, Terry was only 18 years old. However, witnesses in his other murders during this time say he looked much older, more like he was in his 30s. 
Terry Arnold was said to be living in Strathmore, minutes away from Standard in 1981. This is where the Standard figure skaters' pictures were published, and most likely where they practiced. Arnold's girlfriend at the time, believed to be Victoria Spakowski, claimed that a local skating rink was their place for hanging out and socializing prior to going to Winnipeg. Arnold may have seen or met or even known some of the standard figure skaters. Barb Stoeckel, a later murder victim of Terry Arnold, had previously disclosed Arnold's fascination and fixation with girls wearing the skater's costume of the day. Terry Arnold worked across Canada and the United States as a hand for a traveling carnival. At this time, both Canadian law enforcement and the FBI suspected him of serial raping girls as young as 10 and murdering others across Canada and the U.S. In the 1990s, he was convicted of raping four girls, aged 10, 11, 15, and 16, to which he only received six and a half years in prison. Arnold was also the main suspect in the 1987 death of Calgary teen Denise Lapierre and the 1988 murder of Roberta Marie Ferguson, last seen getting into a car near Chilliwack, British Columbia. He was also a prime suspect in the unsolved murder of Barbara Stoeckel, age 16, in Winnipeg. Authorities believe he may have raped and murdered dozens of young girls in Florida, Virginia, Texas, Oklahoma, New York, and even in Mexico. Terry Arnold was serving a life sentence for the 87 killing of Christine Brown, age 16, near Kelowna, B.C., after she had refused to have sex with him. Recently, a Calgary woman has come forward claiming Arnold raped and sodomized her as the nine-year-old daughter of one of Arnold's Calgary girlfriends in the 1980s. The traumatized woman has spent the ensuing years fighting depression, alcoholism, working as a stripper and dealing with her anger that the man who victimized her could roam the country for so long without being caught. Terry served only five years of his life sentence and then won a new trial on appeal after he argued some documents available to the Crown had not been made available to him. Terry is rumored to have also made some very loose confessions about murdering Kelly Cook, but is not publicly available. But like the previous suspect, Terry took the secrets with him to the grave. At age 42, he ended his own life in an apparent drug overdose suicide. He left a suicide note that did not include any confessions. In fact, he declared his innocence. He was scheduled just months away to appear on child porn charges. The Kelly Cook investigation remains open as law enforcement believe the perpetrator is still alive. Between 1981 and 1986, more than 20 RCMP investigators have been handed the Cook file, and today it still remains active. All have reviewed it with a fresh outlook, but in the end, all have come to the same conclusion. Not a stone has been left unturned in the search. Over the years, the murder file has been shifted from investigator to investigator for a fresh look, yet all of them have been stumped. Law enforcement strongly believe the killer and the police have crossed paths at some time during the investigation, which has exhausted thousands of man-hours. Police believe they have spoken with the killer at least once. Although standard town residents are disappointed the case remains unsolved, they are not critical of the police. Most say the police have done everything they can. 
Witnesses described the man as 30 to 45 years old in 1981, making him about 63 to 78 today. He was around 178 centimeters tall, 5'10", in height, with a medium to heavy build and dark hair. There is currently a $120,000 reward being offered to anyone with information. Rumors abound in 2017 that police have a suspect in mind and are investigating. Any tips are essential in bringing justice to Standard and for Kelly Cook and her family. Anyone with information is asked to call the Serious Crimes Branch, South Airdrie K. Division at 403-420-4900 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Again, those numbers are 403-420-4900 or 1-800-222-8477. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links, and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you, or someone you know, will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Capelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler. <laughs>